I think you've said it all, really. You're saying, if I understand it right, Mr. President, you said it's a burden that you've got to carry with you for the rest of your life. Uh, by the time I resigned, I was crippled. I was crippled even before that. Uh, I knew that in terms of being able to govern uh, and being able to be the kind of a president and the kind of a leader that America and the free world and that peace in the world needed, I could no longer do it. And it was my fault. Yeah. When I resigned, people didn't think it was enough to admit mistakes, fine. If they want me to get down and grovel on the floor, no, never. Uh, because I don't believe I should. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are some friends who say, just uh, face them down. There was a conspiracy to get you. Uh, however, I don't go with the idea that what brought me down was a coup, a conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I brought myself down. I gave them a sword and they stuck it in and they twisted it with relish. And I guess if I had been in their position, I'd have done the same thing. Three years after the Watergate scandal brought his presidency to an end, Richard Nixon made one of the most astonishing apologies ever seen on television. And what we just heard was only a tiny part of it. Now you're telling us your innermost feelings at that time. I agree. I did not act fast enough among the many mistakes I made in this period. The man who got Nixon to apologize was David Frost. Would you go further than mistakes? Maybe you know about the Frost-Nixon interviews from the play and Hollywood movie Frost-Nixon. Or maybe you are one of the 45 million Americans who tuned in to the original broadcast, making it the most viewed political interview of all time. The Nixon interviews took place over 11 sessions. And the first question I put to Richard Nixon at the first session was, why didn't you burn the tapes? By the time of those interviews in 1977, David had already been working in television for more than a decade, first in London, then New York as well. But the Nixon interviews would set him apart and solidify his place as one of the most prolific and greatest TV interviewers of the 20th century. Over a five-decade career, he'd interview eight sitting British prime ministers, seven consecutive US presidents, and world leaders from Nelson Mandela to Vladimir Putin to the Shah of Iran. He would record well over 10,000 interviews in his lifetime. Many of them have been lost for a generation. But that's about to change. I'm Wilfred Frost, and David Frost is my dad. And time spent with the boys. I remember when they were five or six, they were quite good about, and Wilfred was quite good about saying, you know, God made the sky and God made the grass. But then, of course, comes the question, who made God? You know, which is really difficult. And I took a lesson that I learned when I was a teacher for a year. And I said, well, I want you to think about that till tomorrow and then come back and tell me. You know? <laughs> and uh, so that was the way off. When Dad died in 2013, suddenly and unexpectedly, I started a journey that would ultimately lead me here, to this podcast. Dad was a hoarder. He never liked to let things go. He had storage depots in London, New Jersey, and two in Los Angeles. 
And so after his death, I started to sift through it all. There was a huge amount of junk, piles and piles of press clippings and files, some garish furniture covered in dust. But I also found letters from Coretta Scott King, Barbara Walters, and J. Edgar Hoover, to name but a few. And, of course, the tapes. Hundreds of old tapes in large metal canisters. But they were unwatchable, literally. They had to be taken to a special lab and treated, then digitally restored to be able to be viewed again. It's been a fairly exhausting and at times emotionally draining experience, but incredibly rewarding. Essentially, in the last few years, I've spent hundreds of hours with my dad again. Hello, this is uh, David Frost with a preview of our first David Frost Presents. Our association with Westinghouse Group W calls for four specials. This was dad looking so young pitching his first big interview show in the US. This was dad long before I knew him, and it was just one of the many tapes I couldn't believe I'd stumbled across. What I'd like to really acquaint you with now is the first special, which is called The Next President, question mark. And we've been very fortunate in getting all the key people that we wanted to talk to. And talk to rather than interview, that's a key thing, because what I'm interested in this first special really is conversation not an interview or an interrogation because... What struck me was that word, conversation. Already, Dab was establishing his interview style that would define him for the next 40 years. And perhaps it's what convinced all of the major presidential candidates, Republicans, Democrats and Independents, to do something in 1968 that seems utterly unimaginable today. To sit down for a long-form interview and talk candidly with a 29-year-old outsider. One of our stars is going to be the next president. And the audience, as they watch the show, will be asking, but which? You know how they say that history repeats itself? Well, my dad had a front row seat to this particular moment in American history, and it feels so much like today. We've allowed ourselves to be so divided. No one can disagree anymore without hating. We might have two Americas, the America of the affluent and the poor, the America of the white and of the black. The most important thing in our country is maintaining law and order. Them the liberals says racist, fascist, hate monger. I think it's really sort of uh, involves the national purpose, almost the soul of the country. What would you say is most Americans' main fear, main hope at this moment? On this podcast, I'm going to take you into my dad's archive to hear tapes from the 60s and 70s that have extraordinary resonance today. You won't find these conversations anywhere else. So join me, Wilfred Frost, as we turn back the clock and dive into the Frost tapes. (laughs) And we're going to start where my dad's interview career in America began. Episode 1, The Next President, 1968. In an election year, of course, everyone behaves rather like a doctor, finding, you know, what, what's wrong with the patient America and sort of suggesting remedies and so on. And everyone talks about the malaise, and, and there are many symptoms of it. Do you think that the things like the cities or the attitude to the war or the race question, do you think these are the malaise, or do you think they're symptoms of something deeper that's got to be put right? Uh, I think it's deeper. 
I think those are symptoms of it. I think it's really sort of uh, involves the national purpose, almost the soul of the country. And uh, That's Senator Robert Kennedy, brother to the former President John F. Kennedy. Bobby, as he was affectionately known, was considered to be one of the front-running Democratic candidates in the 1968 election. But just a matter of weeks after this interview, Robert Kennedy would be assassinated. And um, I think it's involved also to some extent in the tremendous material wealth we have in the United States and what you're going to do with it and how it's going to be utilized. Also the tremendous military wealth or power that we have and, and the fact that uh, we're involved in a, this terribly difficult struggle and we don't quite know what to make of it. There are these eruptions that you mentioned uh, that happen or occur because of all of that. And I think it really comes down to really the national purpose of what we're trying to accomplish and, and what is up at the top that's giving us some direction or some leadership and, and perhaps and lack of confidence in, in, in all of that. And if things go according to plan, say by next January, when you became or become president, what sort of initiatives, what sort of things could you do about this deeper problem? I think that we are in a difficult period of time, and what you would try to do is to bring forth those marvelous characteristics. I think President Kennedy did it to some extent, for instance, during the establishment of the Peace Corps. There you have tens of thousands of young people and older people as well willing to give up their lives, give up their homes, give up their comfort, and go all over the world in order to help others. I think that's really characteristic of the United States. Was there something, in fact, that you mentioned President Kennedy, that he taught you about the scope of how much the potentialities of the presidency? I mean, in well, a sense, I, what you're saying is that it's got more potential than that's than right. being realized. Well, I think that's true, and it goes beyond sort of specific pieces of legislation. You know, an awful lot of legislation can be passed, but you start arguing about what housing bill is better than another housing bill, or what job program, manpower training program is better than another manpower. People get lost with all of that, and understandably, they can't keep up with all the things that are happening in their own community, let alone what is happening at the federal level and the legislation that is being passed. But the presidency is something far beyond that. It's not that you're going to agree with the president on every issue, for instance. There's going to be tremendous disagreement. But the fact that it's giving the country some direction and there's somebody that you feel that's looking out for your own interests, not in a selfish way, and more and beyond that, the interest of the country and the interests of the next generation. Dad wasn't always interviewing heavy hitters like Bobby Kennedy. In the early 60s, he'd graduated from Cambridge and began working as a stand-up comedian, doing sets at the Blue Angel Club in London. His comedy led him to getting involved with a satirical television show aimed, in the words of one producer, to prick the pomposity of public figures. It was called That Was The Week That Was, or TW3. The show lampooned politicians and the establishment, holding them to account in a revelatory way, sort of like Saturday Night Live today, but way, way before its time. And now the Queen, smiling radiantly, is swimming for her life. Dad's early TV work would even help launch the careers of John Cleese and Graham Chapman of Monty Python fame, and legendary British comedy duo The Two Ronnies. But as the 60s wore on and Dad picked up more television work, he became less interested in comedy and more interested in the art of the interview, 
By 1968, Life magazine was saying, his interviews were like a crisp and controversial confessional booth where the great, the notorious, and the weird came to bear their souls. But Dad was getting restless doing that just in London. He set his sights on the bright lights of New York City, the land of opportunity as he saw it. He risked his own money to pitch the show idea the next president, and central to his pitch was that confessional booth. All these people are all the while asked a lot of questions, you know, those fantastic press conferences, much more efficient ones you have here than we have in England. And they're asked a lot of questions there all the time. And what I've tried to talk with them about are things that are not usually asked, about their personal philosophy and about themselves. Because what we It was 1968, a tumultuous year. Campus unrest was spreading across the country with students protesting the Vietnam War and racial injustice. At South Carolina State University, three unarmed black students who were protesting segregation were shot and killed by police. The event became known as the Orangeburg Massacre. Dad interviewed Ronald Reagan, then the governor of California and a candidate for president, just a few weeks later, and asked him how he would address campus unrest. I think sometimes in our, uh, in our own country here, and where this centers on youth, that some of the rebellion on the part of youth is because we, the, their parents, they have seen us displaying a kind of hypocrisy. We are not uh, ourselves following enough the principles and the standards that we tried to teach them. So it isn't that they're rebelling against our standards. They're really crying out for someone to give them some standards. I believe that some of the disturbances on the campus are not the result of too much discipline. I think that they're like the small child that's stomping his feet, and what he really wants is a parent to take him in hand and shake him and, uh, and let him know where the guidelines are. In this way, we could also give them a banner to follow, a cause to believe in. And I think people are looking for such a cause. When you talk, for instance, about uh, violence in the cities and in the streets and crime in the streets and so on, I mean, what are you referring to? I mean, how many different categories are included in that? Well, it covers the, and is encompassed in this whole thing about the, the morality, the morality gap in our land. It has to do with the increase in crime, of course, and particularly an increase in crimes of violence. But the signs that it's more than just having uh, more psychotics, more criminals, and so forth. And the fact of the vast increase in the assaults on uh, symbols of law and order, of policemen, the, the citizen who is not an outright criminal, the, the groups who will suddenly gather and interfere with a policeman and then uh, uh, be violent and attack him when he's going about his business. Here in this capital, uh, several weeks ago or a few months ago, uh, to find a group with the bandoliers of ammunition and the weapons marched into this capital and, and into the legislative halls. And it's, it's a little shocking uh, to Americans, even though we have quite a violent history. But it's been, it's happening now. The people with bandoliers of ammunition, Reagan mentions, were 30 members of the Black Panther Party who marched into California's state capitol building brandishing loaded guns in 1967. The Panthers were exercising their right to open carry, a California law that allowed for anyone with a proper license to carry unconcealed loaded weapons in public spaces. At the time, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, supported a law to restrict open carry. Soon after the Panthers' stunt, Governor Reagan signed the law, effectively putting an end to the Panthers' tactics. 
We'll hear directly from the Black Panther's co-founder Huey Newton in the next episode. But then, but then it's a very violent uh, country, isn't it? I mean, I I read somewhere that you collect guns. Well, uh, not from the standpoint of wanting to attack someone with them, but gun collecting. Uh, I'm not a serious collector in the sense of of people I know who have. Uh, fantastic and marvelous collections of guns dating back historic pieces and so forth. No, I've always had them. I've, I've lived in the country. I've had a ranch. Um, I'm not uh, a hunter to any extent. I shoot varmints now and then to protect the livestock at the ranch. I, I like guns. I like target shooting. It always seems, though, to me that in a country where everyone realizes there may be riots or violence or whatever, that guns are incredibly available, aren't they? Yes, uh, although I'm not one who believes in uh, overdoing the restriction on that because it seems that the wrong person can always get the gun. So perhaps it's proper that the right person should uh, have them at least available. Dad would go on to interview Reagan many times, including in 1971, in the middle of President Nixon's first term, when, in Reagan's view, the social unrest had solidified into permanent divisions. Someplace along the line in this country of ours, we have allowed ourselves, we may one day be known as the sucker generation, we've allowed ourselves to be so divided. Uh, no one can disagree anymore without hating. Uh, this group is polarized, this group is polarized. And uh, this kind of polarization between our people is, has led, it's the, the stridency with which we disagree with each other in politics, for example. Sure, the politician may understand it, or the partisan follower of a party may say, well, that's politics. But they don't take into consideration the emotionally unstable people who get fired up by hearing this rhetoric. What I would like to see happen in this country is see us get back to the days where the two parties could have their bloodletting and have their big political campaign and all the rhetoric that goes with it. But then, when the campaign is over, whichever way it has gone, be pledged to the constitution and toward the basic goals of this country differing only in method and that they could close their ranks and as far as the rest of the world was concerned we'd stand on the shore with a united front we're going to take a break i hear the music we'll be right back we'll be right back the fact that dad moved from comedy into more serious interviews so quickly might seem surprising but we had a glimpse of it the day after President John F. Kennedy was killed in 1963. It was a shock in America, but in Britain too. And the TW3 team couldn't bring themselves to do their normal comedy show criticizing politicians that night. Instead, they tore up the script and wrote a tribute to JFK, which Dad then delivered that night on the BBC. The reason why the shock was so great, why when one heard the news last night one felt suddenly so empty it was because it was the most unexpected piece of news one could possibly imagine it was the least likely thing to happen in the whole world if anyone else had died sir winston churchill de gaulle khrushchev would have been something that somehow we could have understood and even perhaps accepted but that kennedy should go well we just didn't believe in assassination anymore 
Not in the civilized world, anyway. Even in death, it seems, we're not equal. Death is not the great leveler. Death reveals the eminent. It is a time for private thoughts. Good night. Unbeknownst to Dad, his producer sent the tape to the United States, where it was widely viewed. Many Americans were genuinely touched to see someone from across the pond mourning with the nation. In fact, Senator Hubert Humphrey would have part of Dad's monologue read into the congressional record. And five years later, Dad would be interviewing Humphrey, by then Vice President Humphrey, for the next president. Here, they're talking about the impact a president can have in healing the divisions in America. What is my aim is namely one citizenship in this country. Uh, I have worried about that uh, we might uh, have two Americas, the America of the affluent and the poor, the America of the white and of the black, the separate but unequal societies, as uh, our Commission on Civil Disorders said. But I don't believe that's inevitable, you see. I believe that all of these things are manageable. I believe that with the... Uh, with effort and determination and conviction and program and, and uh, courage, you can change these things. I believe in the capacity of the human being to shape history, to mold events, to create events, and not just to be the victim of history or events. You've had this tremendous experience as vice president. In what way uh, would you like a vice president to be? I mean, if a vice president, for instance, uh, working under you as president uh, disagreed on grounds of conscience with very much with what you were doing on policy. Would you expect him to speak out or what? I would expect him first to speak to me so that we could talk it out, hopefully reason it out. But I've always believed that there is a higher authority than uh, legal authority. And I think a man's conscience uh, is indeed uh, that high authority. And if it was a fundamental basic cleavage, I would expect that that man would uh, feel obligated to at, least, uh, to at least speak out. Humphrey would win the Democratic nomination only to lose the election to Richard Nixon come November. But that conscience that Humphrey talked about was something Dad often exercised himself in his interviews. As a young man, he was a lay preacher in the Methodist church and his dad, my grandfather, was in fact a pastor. And as Dad began interviewing, he saw himself in a unique position to hold people to account for what they'd done or said. And he did that in 1968, when he interviewed another presidential candidate, segregationist and perennial governor of Alabama, George Wallace, who after missing out on the Democratic nomination in 64, came back as a third-party candidate in 68 and got 13.5% of the popular vote. The crux of the matter is this is that the people in our region of the country, the Southland, uh, applied common sense and logic uh, to the matter of race relations. And we had a slow evolutionary process in which we had peace and tranquility, unlike that existing any place in the world where there were people of opposite races. And now we find that what I call the pseudo-intellectual elite cult, who sit in their ivory towers and look down at the average man on the street and tells him that I must tell you about race relations. But where did we have the breakdown of law and order and the lack of peace and tranquility? We had it in Detroit. We had it in Los Angeles. We had it in Newark, New Jersey. We had it in New Haven, Connecticut, in Chicago, Illinois. We did not have it in those regions of the country where a common sense, logical approach 
uh, to the problem of race relations had been applied. And it's ironic in our country that people have called those of us racist who have tried to let local people work out matters involving race instead of someone a thousand or two thousand miles away in Washington. And when you ask for that uh, right to determine and saw matters at the local level, then the liberal says racist, fascist, hate monger. Yet, evidently, their theories have not worked because where they have applied their theories, we've had a complete breakdown of race relations and we've had a complete lack of dialogue between the races. And in our part of the country, we have better race relations, thank God, than we have any place above the Mason and Dixon line, for which I am grateful. And I have never made a statement in my life that reflected on anybody because of race or color. I don't ever intend to do so. Well, let's come to the basic question, the basic question on race that's been asked for years and years. Would you let your daughter marry a Negro? I don't even want to, uh, in fact, I don't even want to get into discussion of, of that business. In fact, I don't even want to discuss the matter of race, really, because the most important thing in our country is, uh, uh, is maintaining law and order. Race relations are going to work themselves out. Uh, insofar as people are concerned, I'll put the question to you. Would you like for your daughter to uh, marry someone of an opposite race? And I think that's a matter that uh, will have to be left up. I don't believe in intermarriages of, of Negro and white, if you want. I'm candid and honest about it. I don't think it's good for either race. I think uh, the races ought to remain uh, uh, intact. I think God made one race, he made another race, and, and that it ought to be that way. But if anybody wants to intermarry, that's their own business. But, but you think it's not good for either race? I think that uh, it's not good for either race, that's right. Because it does what? Well, you see, that's one reason I don't even like to discuss these matters with you folks. All you want to do is talk about race. Now, you come from England. Now, we've got, we got three uh, or four reels. We where, can go where, to the where other you subject. folks uh, have passed a law over there that you don't even let Asians come in the country. Oh, I know. We've got, we've and, got uh, nothing to preach about. Well, I, I just don't even want to talk about race. Why? I'm not even going to talk about bloodlines. I'm just going to talk about the common sense right of people in the states to determine policies of domestic democratic institutions and let them decide those yeah, questions. Yeah, but, but, but you made a point, you must explain it, uh, you made the point that you think it's not good for either race. Why is I that? I think for obvious reasons and I'm not going to discuss it any further. I'm not going to discuss it any further, that's all. But then the reasons aren't obvious. I just not going to give you any. I don't have to give any reason for it. I just don't think you know marriage among, among the black and white race is good. Now that's you've got what you want. Well, no, I mean I, I don't particularly want to. Well, I you say I'm just not going to discuss it any further. Why? Because it's I just impossible don't want to discuss explain. it. I just don't want you discuss it. Well, is it irrational? I just don't want because that's all you talk about is race. And I'm not a racist, and I'm not anti-Negro. And every time I'm on a program of any sort, whether it be uh, Western House, English, British, French, they want to talk about race. And uh, I'm just not going to, I don't have anything against anybody because of race, and that's all I'm going to say about it. No, let me make it clear. I want to talk about a lot of other things. I want to talk about God and the country and a great many other things. But, but the point is, you're usually so explicit and good in your explanations that it makes one rather mystified why this is one well, point that you can't I'm explain. I'm mystified you then. Ladies and gentlemen at home, you're all mystified. Now, I think in general, if you can help people to relax and forget they're on television or forget they're on radio, I mean, I think this is the important thing. It's that old Aesop's fable about interviewing, that, you know, the uh, wind and the sun having a competition to get someone's uh, coat off. 
and the wind huffs and puffs and the man just draws his coat close around him, you know, and then the sun just shines warmly and the man takes his coat off. And really you've, uh, in a sense, got to create a context in which people feel like taking their coat off. If there was one man who needed help getting comfortable in front of the television, at least in his early days, it was candidate Richard Nixon. His first campaign for president against JFK in 1960 was obviously unsuccessful, though extremely close. But now in 1968, he was hoping to correct his past mistakes. Is there any episode you'd like to rewrite? Well, I suppose the answer which first comes to mind is the campaign of 1960. Uh, should I or shouldn't I have not have debated uh, John Kennedy on television? And if I did debate him, uh, that perhaps I uh, should have uh, had uh, some people have said a better makeup man than the rest. My appearance on television, I can't do anything about my face. I tried, but there it is. And people have got to, no makeup man can cure it. Uh, I think all of, the, all of that, however, is rather beside the point. Uh, I would not try to Monday morning quarterback the things that I did as vice president or as a campaigner. Mistakes were made. Uh, I prefer to look to the future. And as far as those mistakes are concerned, I won't try to, I'll try not to make as many. Right. Now, I just wonder if there was one remark, for instance, you, you looking back, wish you hadn't said, or something like that. I think we've all got those, probably. Many people looking at my life would say that the, uh, the statement that I should not have made was my criticism of the press when I lost for governor of California. Uh, and I would... After losing the race to become California's governor in 62, Nixon felt the press were delighted at his loss. He famously said, You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. Needless to say, it wasn't. Because I remember when I first entered politics, a very wise old politician gave me some very good advice. He said, Now, uh, Dick, uh, I want to tell you something. You're going to make many mistakes during the course of your political career, but remember this. Never get into an argument with the press, because they always, they always have the last word. Uh, however, when I finished that campaign for governor in California, I didn't have any idea that I would ever be sitting where I am today being interviewed as a potential candidate for the presidency of the United States. And a private citizen has a right to express his views when he thinks he's being put upon. However, as a public figure, I would say that was a mistake. And I can also assure you that as far as getting in an argument with the press, it won't happen again, as long as I'm a public figure. <laughs> but when you're not, then you never go. <laughs> but I mean, do you in fact uh, recognize the picture of yourself you see in the press? Is there one thing about you, one personal quality you suspect that doesn't get enough play in the press? Well, now, I'm not going to get in the business of criticizing the press no, again. No, just to say, what one thing you'd add to the... Oh, to the picture than the press? Yes. I suppose every political man feels that his critics, in the press and otherwise, uh, make a mistake when they question the sincerity of his views. Now, if I were to ask for any treatment uh, from the press or my critics, it would be this. I, I don't mind their questioning my tactics, uh, how I express myself. But when, when they go to the point of saying, well, this man really isn't for peace, because he stands for a firm line in Vietnam or in the Mideast or someplace else. Uh, then I say, that's the kind of criticism that I think could well be left alone. This is, a, this is a huge question, I know, but at root, what would you say people are on earth for? Abraham Lincoln put it best when he said that uh, our goal is to give everybody an equal chance at the starting line. He did not say that our goal should be to give people uh, the housing and the jobs and everything that they want, but an equal chance at the starting line. And if my children and their grandchildren 
uh, can grow up in a world in which all people have an equal chance at the starting line and to develop to the full their creative abilities, then we are going to have progress just undreamed of. We're going to break into the unknown uh, and it will be an exciting and interesting world. Of course, Nixon would go on to win the election of 68 and the next five years of American history would be shaped by his policies and actions. Dad and Nixon would meet again under very different circumstances in 1977. The next president, 1968, was broadcast across America in May. It was a success for Dad and would lead Westinghouse to give him his own nightly show the following year. For the broadcast, each interview was cut down from 40 minutes to about 12 minutes. And given that it was a trial production with Dad for Westinghouse, it had a fairly low budget, so the tapes that weren't broadcast were reused and recorded over. Except one of them, Robert Kennedy's interview. On news of Kennedy's death, Dad managed to save the entire interview, which was then broadcast in full, and we return to it now. Of what was possibly the last personal interview he gave. We are showing it tonight, in tribute, in his memory. Sound 43, Senator Kennedy. Senator Kennedy, wherever I go in, in America, people always say to me that this is so-and-so, but this isn't the real America. If you had to pick one place, where would you point to and say that to you this was the real America? Well, I think it's probably difficult. Uh, if you ask me for a specific place, I think perhaps smaller towns are upstate New York, uh, Iowa, but I suppose there are a lot of different communities. I think once you get away from the maybe the large urban centers where life is a little bit more frantic. I think uh, you might see more about the understanding and the courage and the compassion of people. Some people define election year as a year in which people are trying to find out what the electorate are hoping for and what they're frightened of, that it's to do with hope and fear. What would you say is most Americans' main fear and main hope at this moment? I think uh, really it's a uh, hope for a national purpose, and I think that's, uh, I mean, that sounds general, but I really think that that's uh, a recapturing of the purpose of the country and, that, and the direction of the country. I think that's what it is fundamentally, the end of divisions within the country. Not the end, because we can never end them, but I mean to escape from the bitterness and the hatred that is, uh, exists to a greater extent in the United States than perhaps it has for a number of generations. And to give us uh, some national purpose and, and restore the soul of the country. Now, what was the other question? The fear. The fear that we won't. <laughs> but. Uh, what is, yeah, national purpose is another thing that's right. terribly difficult to define. I know, and, and I think that a lot of it's, as I say, we have this tremendous gross national product, we have this tremendous wealth, the economy is going up uh, fantastically high, the individual is making much more money, and what does it all mean once we have it? If children and parents are becoming alienated from one another, if there's greater bitterness between blacks and whites, as there is now, and well, if we're very bitter and over the war in Vietnam, then you wonder just what direction you're going in and what this all means. But basically, you'd just say that it, in a sense, lost direction, really. I just think we can do much, much better, this country. And I don't want to continue like we have over the period of the last few years. I don't believe the American people do. I think we want to 
turn a corner, and I don't think we can at the moment. Do you believe in the principle, my country, right or wrong? Uh, no, I, I, you know, I think that you, one has this uh, uh, affection or feeling for its country, but I think of what Camus said uh, during the uh, war with Algeria, that uh, my criticism comes because I want to love my country in justice. And I think that's what we want. We want to have this affection and feeling for our country in justice. Of course, many have wondered how different America might have been if Kennedy, who had a good chance of winning in 68, hadn't been assassinated. I was going to the big question of, of uh, and this is a huge one, but, but, but very basic in a way. What would you say, Root, that people are on earth for? I think basically to make a contribution to some others who are less well off. Um, saying that I complained because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. You can always find someone that is, has a more difficult time than you do, has, suffers more and his faces a more difficult time, one way or another. And I think to the last analysis, if you have made some contribution to someone else to improve their life and make their life a little bit more livable, a little bit more happier, uh, I think that that's what you should be doing. Yes, how would you like to be remembered? I mean. Uh, in, what would you like the first line of a history book about Robert Kennedy to say? I think something about the fact that he I made some contribution to uh, uh, either, you know my country or uh, or those who were less well off. I think again back to uh, uh, what Camus wrote about the fact that. Uh, Perhaps this world is a world in which children suffer, but we can lessen the number of suffering children. And if you do not do this, then who will do this? And I'd like to feel that I'd done something to lessen that suffering. That particular phrase of that particular interview resonated with Dad more than any other in his career. He would always talk about the need to make a contribution in life, whether speaking in public or to my brothers, Miles, George and I. I feel like he used the phrase even more in the twilight of his life. In fact, in an ad campaign for the clothing brand Dunhill, just a couple of years before he died, he reflected on those very words said to him by Bobby Kennedy in 1968. Robert Kennedy was talking about his work and so on, and, and I said, how would you like to be remembered and so on, and he said, um, well, there's a line in Albert Camus that this is a world in which children suffer, and I'd like to have made a contribution to lessening that suffering. One man can make a difference. Are you that one man? Coming up over the next eight episodes on The Frost Tapes, a deep dive into American history with the people who made it. Can't you see what is happening now on the American scene? At one time, we talked about our capacity to endure. Now we're talking about our capacity to resist. The moments of truth, when you suddenly think, that's me too. It was a year of turbulence in American society. 
A lot of people are protesting the policies of your particular administration. I think it is our moral obligation to protest those things. The clarion call of American fascism is on its way, and the police state is rapidly upon us. The greatest concentration of power in the United States today is not in the White House, it's in the media, and it's too much. I think it's regrettable that you have chosen to attack personalities rather than problems. I think this is the job of the press to uncover as much of that as we possibly can. We want leadership that we can look up to. So what in a sense you're saying is that there are certain situations where the president can decide that it's in the best interest of the nation or something and do something illegal. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. These interviews have been edited for length and clarity. The Frost Tapes is a production of iHeartRadio and Paradine Productions. Executive producers of The Frost Tapes are Wilfred and George Frost. Executive producer for iHeartMedia is Mangesh Hatikada. Produced by Ryan Murdoch and Nikki Etor. Written by Lucas Riley, Ryan Murdoch and Wilfred Frost. Directed and edited by Ryan Murdoch, with help from Abu Zafar, Michelle Lands, and Josh Fisher. Fact-checked by Austin Thompson. Special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions and Morgan Lavoie of iHeartMedia. Media.